Welcome to another episode of Who Says No. I am one of your hosts, Sam Quinn. Your other host, Colin Ward-Henninger, is probably out enjoying his Saturday, you know? We don't get that many days off in this business, so I'm not going to begrudge him taking one. But some of us just have that grind, and that is our guest today, Billy Reinhardt from Nets Daily. Billy, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Sam. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on. We just had Jackson Gatlin, who hosts Locked on Rockets, so this is a really nice streak for me of having people from fan bases who really don't like me. I think you're my last friend on Nets Twitter, so I think we're going to take advantage of that and try to build some goodwill today. Let's do that, Uh, Sam. Help you out. Fortunate, or unfortunately, rather, the first player we're going to talk about is somebody who I am not particularly um, high on. That is Blake Griffin, who is listed as probable for Sunday's game. That would be his Nets debut. I personally am pretty skeptical that he's going to make a big difference for the Nets, and a lot of that just boils down to the fact that when he was in Detroit, he just didn't look like he could move anymore. If you're going to function in a defense that switches as much as the Nets do, I am pretty dubious that you can do so moving as poorly as he did. Billy, what are your initial thoughts on Blake Griffin before having seen him play? Yeah, I'm a lot higher than you are, and I think a lot of it is about his IQ for the game, which I've always thought highly of, um, even dating back to his Clippers days, where he really learned how to play, especially off Chris Paul in the short roll um, and showing his passing ability. I mean, he would be in the short roll, he'd find DJ for a lob, he'd find Reddit, uh, uh, Reddick, excuse me, in the weak side for a corner three. I mean, Blake Griffin is a smart passer and a smart player, um, and he, he's always had that, and he's improved his shooting over the years, although his percentages don't look great over the two less injured seasons he's played only 38 games over the last two seasons with the Pistons so I don't know how much to take from that although his percentages as I said did not look great um, but I have confidence he's improved enough as a shooter over the years he'll be able to help in that regard and then as I mentioned as a passer in the short role you mentioned defensively um, and the Nets do like to switch a lot I don't think he's going to be playing a ton of four um, so so it's not like they're losing something from whoever would play there previously, whether it was a Jeff Green or a Kevin Durant or even Bruce Brown or Joe Harris in a small ball lineup or James Harden guarding some fours. He's going to be playing some five. And if you look at it in that perspective, I think he'll be a better switcher than, than DeAndre Jordan is. And the Nets will be able to get away with that a little bit. So I think Blake Griffin generally... You're not going to have him coming here expecting him to be the all-star that he was a few years back with the Pistons, but he's a smart player. I think he could shoot well enough, and I think his shooting percentage will go up to about a 38% range even, um, given that he'll have open catch-and-shoot looks. I mean, when you look at him in Detroit, he was a, a main ball handler a lot of the time, taking off the dribble, step-back threes contested. I mean, he had to do that with that roster, and that's what they asked of him. With the Nets, he's going to be getting wide-open looks. I think it's going to really play to what he could still do at this point of his career. And when it gets to his athleticism, I think that dunking has been overrated at this point. I think you're going to see Blake Griffin. I mean, he's 6'9", 6'10". He, he could still dunk. He's not the athlete he once was. Um, but he could, he could finish off a wide-open alley-oop or a wide-open dunk on the break. And I think you'll see more of that in Brooklyn going forward. I think you touched on an important point, which is that Blake's shooting numbers traditionally have not been great. He's gotten up to something resembling league average. But he's done that as the primary scorer for bad Pistons teams. There is a big difference in shooting 35%, 36% on the sort of pull-up shots that you can get when you're the best Piston versus mm-hmm. the sort of shots that you can get with the Nets. And I, I think Jeff Green is a really nice parallel to this. He obviously was never Blake Griffin, but suddenly he joins a team with Kyrie Irving, Jeff, um, James Harden, and Kevin Durant, and he starts shooting 42%. I don't know how sustainable that is. I think some of that has to do with fans not being at games, but I think you're seeing across the board having that kind of shot creation and being as open as you get to be in Brooklyn, that means a lot. Like, that's something that I think Blake has never shot 38% over a meaningful sample size. I wouldn't be too surprised if he ended up doing it here. The passing is the other really valuable element. I mean, man, if you talk about running a pick and roll with, say, Harden and Blake, and you you blitz Harden and suddenly... Blake has the four on three as the passer with Durant and Kyrie as two of the other guys. Like, man, it's going to be really hard not to get good shots with them. The question fundamentally, though, is how much upside is there really with any addition to this Nets offense? Because they're already the best offense of all time. I think they're at 118 points per 100 possessions. Are the gains that you could make offensively at all worth the potential downside on defense? I, I think, and I've seen you bring this point up even before the season, as you mentioned, a lot of Nets fans don't like your opinions because you were a little lower on them 
um, than some others. But you brought up. I've how- called myself a net skeptic, although I have to say the more I watch him, or the more I watch them, the less skeptical I become. Like, it's really hard to deny how good they are. Yeah, but I remember before the season, you were talking about that same argument and how hard it probably wouldn't be a great move for the Nets. You were saying how, I mean, how much better can the Nets be offensively than the best offense of all time, which was previously the Mavericks of last season? It turns Um, out a good deal. And you were bringing up that argument. I think, I mean, until you're scoring on every single possession of the game, you can continue to get better offensively. I think that's just the reality of the situation. The Nets are the best offensive we've ever seen, Um, but they, they still don't score on some possessions. And I think... Uh, value can continue to be added on, on both ends of the ball. And Blake Griffin's value as a connector, as you mentioned, when he's playing pick and roll with James Harden, and we see how great James Harden makes other bigs, he's kind of reinvigorated DeAndre Jordan's um, lob threat, um, even though some people are still low on what Jordan brings, and he has his holes in his game, but he's been successful with Harden. We've seen Jeff Green, even going back to Houston last year, how great they are in a two-man game. And Blake can dribble, pass, and shoot, similarly to Jeff Green, probably even a better passer. So, I think Griffin is going to be very good, especially next to Griff, uh, James Harden. Excuse me. And as you mentioned, him being able to pass on a four on three, that's going to be a big help for this team. I really think his IQ and his shooting, I think those are the two things that allow people to age gracefully in this league. Even look at someone like Jared Dudley, who barely plays for the Lakers. And now he got hurt, but he's been able to stay in the league because he's a ball mover. He's a high IQ player. He can pass. And he can still shoot high 30s when he gets his his, uh, chances during a game. He has to come into the game. So I think Blake Griffin, he could do something similar where he'll be able to move the ball, obviously better than Dudley, um, but just similar in that mindset where he's a high IQ player that can shoot the ball and he'll be able to have an impact because of that. So when we get to the playoffs, minutes are going to be, let's say, harder to distribute, right? It's all you can always find minutes for guys in the regular season when we get to the playoffs. How are they going to allocate those 48 minutes at center if we assume that Blake is primarily going to be a center? Because I think we would both agree that the Jeff Green at center lineups are probably the best version of them. The small ball version where they're unstoppable on on offense and have that mobility to switch. I think that's the best version of the Nets. Meanwhile, when Nick Claxton is at center, they're outscoring opponents by 20.9 points per 100 possessions. So (laughs) I think you'd probably want to have that in your back pocket. Oh, and then there's also DeAndre Jordan, who I don't think is, I'll just say it, I don't think he's very good. At the very least, I think he's the worst of their options. They're only outscoring opponents with him at center by 1.7 points per 100 possessions. For a team as good as the Nets, like, that's not good enough. You have 48 minutes for, at the very least, those four guys. Claxton and Green can go down a little bit. They can play four. But how are you allocating the center minutes in the playoffs? So I think the Nets have had the luxury of, obviously, they're a leading championship contender. After making the Harding trade, they had a few roster spots open. They have some flexibility with their exceptions. And, I mean, they're in a big market, so they're a really attractive spot for talent. So I think they're just taking advantage of that. And they're trying to bring as much of it in as possible, letting these guys know, listen, there might be a series where you may not play as much. But um, they're going to have the versatility and the options. And I think that's what you're going to see throughout the playoffs. They play a team like Boston, and I don't think that's a DeAndre Jordan series. Um, they play a team like Miami. I'm not sure Jordan plays much either. But if you play a Philadelphia, I think the Nets are going to have to, for at least 15 minutes a night, give DeAndre Jordan time to match up with Embiid and bang down in the low post. Um, they could, who knows, they could go the opposite way and just say, listen, we're not going to be able to match up to Philly's size. We're going to go small. We're going to switch everything. We're going to swarm the ball, double Embiid on every touch in the post and just try and play super small and then stretch them out offensively. They could go that way. But I think they're going to want to give Jordan some minutes against Embiid. Um, that uh, Drummond, I think if he wants to come to the Nets and he's okay, realizing that he's not going to play a lot of minutes, I think obviously you take him on, right? If, you, if everyone's okay with it, you figure it out. I mean, it's not bad to have options, but I think Drummond would basically play the Jordan role, obviously being a little bit better, but I'm not sure if he's going to improve the Nets defensively, um, as a low post defender against Embiid. I think Jordan might be as good there, if not better in terms of being a low post defender against Embiid. So I don't know where Drummond fits. I think, like I said, you take him if he wants to come. But but as you mentioned, the Nets have a lot of options now. And I think what you'll see in the series where they do play big, they might cut Bruce Brown from the rotation. Because um, this is going to be a minutes crunch coming up. And he's we've already seen a little bit of issues when Brown's playing at the same time as Jordan. The floor could be a little clogged against good defensive teams. You're kind of playing with two non-shooters. Um, I think Blake Griffin... It's a little could, Warriors-like when the Warriors would have... Curry, Durant, and Thompson with two non-shooters where, like, you can make it work, but Mm -hmm. it's certainly not ideal. 
Yeah, so I think going into the playoffs when you're playing really good defensive teams that will scheme to try and clog the Nets up with that, I think you're going to see less of Brown with Jordan. Um, Jordan's the only Nets big that really can't shoot at all. Claxton can a little bit, although we haven't seen him really unleash from the perimeter. So I think you're going to see less of Brown and Jordan together, maybe choose between one of them based on the series you're playing. Um, I think there is a role for Jordan, though, against a team like the Sixers. I This is going to sound a little counterintuitive. I think the Bucks sort of made the P.J. Tucker trade with DeAndre Jordan in mind. Like, I don't think they were thinking we have to beat DeAndre Jordan. But I think back to that first game they played right after the Harden trade, when DeAndre was so good defensively against Giannis, yeah. I think that the Bucks viewed P.J. Tucker as a way of getting traditional centers off of the floor in crunch time against the Nets so that they could play with Giannis as their biggest player. And if the Nets do the same, if they're playing with, say, Jeff Green at center, now all of a sudden Giannis, you know, you, the build the wall strategy doesn't work quite as well because you don't have the traditional center on the floor. It's much easier for him to get to the basket and suddenly their offensive deficiencies become much less harmful. Now, that, that, I want to talk about... Great point. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. That's a great point, and, that, and we're starting to get to that point of the season where it's really fun. You start to think about the scheming and the game plans between these teams. I think for the Bucks, um, they have to just basically hope that P.J. Tucker can return to form as a shooter because, I mean, he's not shooting much better than Brooke Lopez this season, and that's really been the issue with the Bucks, where Lopez's shooting has continually gone down year after year. Um, and centers really don't have to respect him. They just leave him open in the corner. If he's going to shoot a 30% clip, they'll, they'll let him take that. So if Tucker can get back to shooting mid to high 30s, which I have hope he could, um, that's definitely an issue for the Nets, and they will have to downsize probably. My argument for Tucker is over the past few years, I think it's the past three years, with Harden as his point guard, he was getting 3.7 wide open threes per game. This year he's down to 2.1. I mm-hmm. think I'm, I feel comfortable that he's going to be better I don't know if he's going to get back up to 39% from the corners, but I am optimistic about that move. I would still pick the Nets pretty comfortably in that series, but I think the Bucks went from like a 2% chance of beating the Nets to a 20% chance. Like there is now a meaningful chance, but I want to get to Nick Claxton, who is already, I've seen him play maybe seven or eight games, and he's already maybe my favorite young player in the league. There was a possession against Indiana where he lands on Karis LeVert in a switch, stops him one-on-one, they get an offensive rebound, and then he stops McConnell one-on-one too. Like, this is exactly what you need to happen if you send all of your first-round picks out for another star. You need to land somebody like this, somebody younger, somebody energetic, that can extend the window a little bit and also outperform your expectations on synergy right now. He is a 97th percentile offensive player and an 83rd percentile defensive player. He is one of my favorite young players in the league. I'm just going to give you the floor. Say all of the positive things about Nick Claxton you want. Nets Twitter, you have earned it. He is every bit as good as he has been advertised. Yeah, Steve Nash has said it. He just allows the Nets to play a little differently. He brings something that this team didn't previously have in terms of having a big that could switch on to guards and wings and not just hold his own and allow you to survive as a switching defense, but thrive. I really don't think it's out of the question to say that Nick Claxton is arguably the best perimeter defender on the nets. I, I don't it's not crazy. crazy. Yeah. People are going to think it's crazy because he's a six eleven guy and he switches out on, on to guard. He's primarily guarding bigs, but, but I think with his length, his mobility, they're obviously not putting him on Jason Tatum as a primary defender or someone of that ilk. But when he gets on him, he could clamp him up. And you got Bruce Brown's good. KD's obviously good. Uh, but I think Nick Claxton is, is right there. I feel very comfortable with him on, on guards and wings. And it's almost that Harden effect where teams think when Harden's down in the post, well, we got to post him. He's a 6'5 guard. But Harden's better in the post. Harden's one of the best post defenders in the league. It's similar when, when teams get Claxton on the perimeter. They're like, okay, our guards, we got a mismatch. We got the center out here now. Let's attack. And that plays right into the Nets' hands because – I mean, that, that's a favorable matchup for Nets, the Nets mo- most times out there. So Claxton still has to get bigger, fill out. Um, I would be worried about him against the Sixers guarding Joel Embiid. I think while he's great in space and he's active and he does all these things, his post defense is the weakest part of him defensively right now. And Embiid, I think, would really um, dominate that matchup. 
But in all those other ones, I, the Nets got torched by Bam Adebayo for 40 points earlier this season. I think Nick Claxton's an ideal guy to guard Bam, especially with Bam's ability now to step out and, and shoot mid-range dumpers. I think Claxton can get in his face and not be worried about um, being beat off the dribble. So I think Claxton would be huge in that matchup. Like I said, he just brings something the Nets haven't had. Offensively, he's springy, um, and Harden makes it easier, as we said. Harden makes it a lot easier for these bigs when they're rolling to the rim. Claxton really hasn't showed his full bag offensively um, at, at Georgia. He showed some ability to shoot the ball. He says he could shoot the ball. The Nets have confidence he'll eventually be able to shoot the ball, but he hasn't really unleashed from three too much um, other than late shot clock situations or anything like that. So he'd also handle the ball potentially. I mean, there's a lot of room for growth in his skill set, but right now he's playing his role well, screening, rolling hard, finishing at the rim, getting an extra possession here and there with his effort and activity. And then defensively, the versatility and, and the mobility and the footwork. I mean, it's just very impressive right now. When this guy fills up, fills out, I think he's the center of the future for the Nets. And when KD gets back, I'm really excited to see how they look as a four five combo, two long rangy, um, similar body type guys. I mean, if you're not going to be able to have DJ on the floor in a series against Giannis, I think Nick Claxton might be that guy that could pick him up high enough where he doesn't give Giannis a runway to the rim. Uh, but still have a seven-foot side is, and, and the length to kind of contest Giannis's shot. So Claxton's development's been huge, and I hope this guy gets a chance to really play deep in the playoffs. Hope politics don't become a thing and DJ gets to play or Andre Drummond if they get him, because I think Claxton could really bring something to this team. I'm going to take things a step further. I think the biggest question that any team hoping to beat the Lakers has to answer is how are you defending the LeBron-Anthony Davis pick-and-roll? And what we saw in last year's playoffs was that, aside from maybe Bam and Jimmy, nobody they played had a good answer. And I think if you are going to pick the Lakers over the Nets, a big reason is that, well, you can't do it with DeAndre Jordan. He's just not mobile enough. And if you're going to do it with Jeff Green and Kevin Durant, you're going to have them switch. That still presents some mismatch opportunities. If you have Claxton in there on Davis, I'm not totally against the idea that Claxton could switch on to LeBron and defend him effectively, and then Durant could switch on to Davis and bother him. Like, it's not ideal, but mm-hmm. that's probably the best answer they have, right? No, I, I really think I, I think KD could actually guard AD in, in moments. Um, I, I, AD, we see, he likes to kind of float around the perimeter a little bit more. If, I mean, if someone's in his ear saying, you're posting KD every single time you get that matchup, maybe. Um, maybe he could really explore. He does not like to do that. Like, I'll put... Yeah. Exactly. Anthony Davis can post guys up. Mm-hmm. He is not somebody that likes to bully skinnier defenders. Exactly. He I'm more saying. likes to torture bigger guys on the perimeter. Exactly. So I think if you switch that, KD on a switch guarding AD, I think the Nets could not only survive, I think that's a matchup that they could definitely be okay with. Um, KD's 6'10", 6'11", we know that. He's long. He's similar in height and length to AD. AD's obviously a little bit stronger, but if he's not going to try and post him every time, I think that's a matchup the Nets can deal with. But having KD, Jeff Green, um, and then Claxton, I think those three guys switching that two-man matchup, two-man action could really um, work for the Nets. And I, I almost personally think LeBron is where you want to have your stronger defender. And AD's taller, obviously, but LeBron's more a physical player. He'll take guys down in the post. So um, I think the Nets will play with that matchup. Maybe Bruce Brown will see some time on on um, on LeBron, although obviously you don't want him switching on to AD. And then Blake, I, I know you don't love his ability to switch, but him switching, the issue is more mobility, not as much strength. Blake's a strong guy. So I think I wouldn't even be afraid to get him involved in, in 20 minutes a game, switching that matchup. I think he can guard LeBron and AD with strength and spurts and then stretch out to the perimeter enough um, with the ability to sag off, obviously, on a LeBron jumper. Um, to be able to guard that as well. So that gives them that's three or four guys in that similar um, body type now where we were wondering, I mean, they need more coming into the season. We need, they need more guys in that, in that kind of six, seven to six, 10 strong forward mold. And now they have three or four of them. So we'll see what happens there. I think the Nets are definitely in a better position now to play the Lakers than they were coming into the season. And then you have the factor that maybe they can add someone in the buyout market, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. You mentioned LeBron in the post, and I was hesitant to take anything super meaningful from the first game the Lakers and the Nets played because Kevin Durant didn't play and Anthony Davis didn't play. Something that I did notice was that LeBron, which is this is what LeBron does, when he gets into the post, he's really just waiting for the double. 
and he's taking his time. He wants to pass. That's not to say that he can't score out of the post, but he is not somebody who's trying to score out of the post as soon as he gets the ball there, regardless of the matchup, unless it's just too incredible. Like, if he gets Joe Harris in the post, he's going to take him to the basket. But a lot of what happened when the Nets played the Lakers and when LeBron got the ball in the post in that matchup was he would wait for the double, the double wouldn't come, and then he would just sort of shrug and say, okay, fine, turn around jumper. And he made them against the Nets. He's made them this year at a much higher clip than he usually does. That is a shot you can live with as the Nets. And I think that is going to be one of the most important strategic battlegrounds of that series. How, how far can you go as the Nets without doubling LeBron in the post? If you can get away with not doing that for the entire series, that is a huge win. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of it's going to depend on the Lakers role players and their ability to shoot and how they show throughout the playoffs. Because in that first matchup, I mean, obviously the Lakers were shorthanded some, but those role players were clanking everything. KCP was in the middle of one of his ruts um, and the Nets were shooting and making everything. So I think if the Laker role players can prove that they're going to be shooting the ball well consistently during that span, then it's going to be tough for the Nets to guard LeBron down there. But uh, like I said, I think they're in a better position to do it now than they were coming into the season. So I want to change gears. We've talked a little bit about the buyout market, but the Nets quietly have a lot more flexibility, both in free agency and in the trade market, to improve if they want to. They have two big exceptions, the disabled player exception from Spencer Dinwiddie's injury, $5.7 million. Can use that in a trade, can use that in free agency. They still have their mid-level exception. Last I checked, it was at around $5 million. That's obviously prorating by the day. And then there's the big question, which is Spencer Dinwiddie is probably out for the year. We don't know for sure. He has an $11.5 million salary this season. He has a player option for next year that we expect him to decline. If he's not going to help this season and he might leave for free in the offseason, do you consider trading Spencer Dinwiddie purely for the sake of improving your championship odds this year, or are you thinking more for the long haul? Let's keep him. So I'm kind of in the, the, the boat that I think there is more than a minimal chance that Dinwiddie returns this season, but let, let's even throw that away. Let's pretend we don't know what happens there. I'm not trading him just to trade him. I mean, unless I have a firm thing from Joe Sy to Sean Marks that, yeah, listen, we can't afford him. We can't go deeper in a luxury tax. There's no way we're going to be able to reach his number this free agency. Um, if you know that exactly, then I'm, and there's a very little chance he returns. I think, I mean, you're probably going to dump him for for pennies on the dollar. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think Joe Sy is telling Sean Marks that at this point. I think he's continually willing to invest in this team. I'm not just dumping Spencer Dinwiddie just to dump him because of that. So I think it has to be a player. And Mike Scotto reported that. The Nets are looking for a role player that could potentially play in the the playoffs for them and a second round pick for Dinwiddie. It has to be a player that could play in the Nets playoff rotation. The Nets are slowly but surely a deep team now. Um, They have a lot of options. They might be cutting a guy like Tyler Johnson or Landry Shabbat or even Bruce Brown come time for the playoff rotation. So they have good players. You're going to need a player that's better than those guys, in my opinion, to move the needle on a Dinwiddie trade. So I, I don't really know the appeal that Dinwiddie has to a lot of teams it has to be someone that's over the cap that's gaining an advantage by getting his bird rights and being able to pay him that they normally wouldn't like a team like Detroit they're rumored to like Dinwiddie I don't really know why they would give up any assets for Dinwiddie I 100% agree with that it like, made no I, sense I, to me and Miami was in the same boat yeah I mean Miami I could see a little bit more just because um they'll obviously have cap space but maybe ingrain him into the heat culture a little more. They're a winning team. There's a slight possibility he comes back in the playoffs, whatever that may be. Um, the Pistons, they're not likely, they're not going to get anything from Dinwiddie this year, more than likely, almost definitely. Um, and then they don't need, they have, they'll have caps flexibility probably this offseason. So I don't really see what they, they would do there. So it's a weird combination of a team that you're looking for to do this. Maybe someone like New Orleans. I think they have a couple options that could maybe move the needle for the Nets. Maybe Chicago. Chicago is competing for the playoffs right now. Um, maybe they can use another point guard. I could see that. They have Thaddeus Young, obviously, there. I don't know if the Nets would have enough to make that happen. But I'd look at someone like Thaddeus Young for the Nets. I'd aim high for that. Um, I would look at Josh Hart in New Orleans. I think he'd be a guy that's an upgrade over Bruce Brown in terms of his ability to shoot the ball, maybe play more with big bigs in a series. Really good rebounding guard, solid 3 and D player. So I would like Josh Hart. 
Um, but other than that, I see slim pickings around the league. If you're really looking for a player that's going to play for the Nets in the rotation come playoff time, it's more so um, in that case, just, just dumping them for what you can get. I'm glad you brought up Thaddeus Young. I think the funny thing about Thaddeus Young is that he is kind of exactly what they're hoping Blake Griffin can be, which is that he's a great passer. He's been a great small ball five for the Bulls this season. He's awesome switching. He's very good defending the perimeter. I think that would be a little bit of an overlap, but I think Thad Young would be very good for them. Brought up the Pelicans as well. I don't know how eager they are to trade Josh Hart because he's young. They're a young team. They probably want to re-sign him. I mean, I love Josh Hart. I think he would be a slam dunk. I do have another Pelicans trade. This is, in a way, kind of a cap dump for New Orleans. What about Eric Bledsoe? What about something like Eric Bledsoe and a second-round pick from the Pelicans going to the Nets for Dinwiddie and Tyler Johnson to make the numbers work? That's pretty expensive, and you brought up some of the, I don't want to say financial concerns, but let's just say the Nets have... They have the most expensive roster, rather, I think it's the second most expensive roster in the NBA after the Warriors. But they also haven't spent their mid-level exception. They declined Garrett Temple's option. They're not in this position, like, they're not where Mark Cuban was when he first bought the Mavs or some of the early Dolan Knicks teams where it was like, money is no object, we're going to throw it around wildly. I don't know how enthusiastic the Nets would be about taking on Bledsoe's long-term money. But I think Bledsoe could certainly at least play a small role in the playoffs. What do you think? That's interesting. I didn't think about that. Um, so I'm looking at Bledsoe. He has two more years, uh, just under $40 million after this season. So that, that's a lot of money, as you mentioned. Could, they have to think to themselves, in my opinion, could we potentially get Dinwiddie for a similar number, um, annually at least, around $18, 19000000 per year? I think it's possible. I think Dinwiddie's going to shoot a little bit higher than that, but who knows coming off an injury? Because um, I'd rather, obviously, have Dinwiddie. And I don't know if it's obvious, but I personally would rather have Dinwiddie over Bledsoe going forward. If he's healthy, I agree. Yeah. Um, I think Bledsoe could bring something defensively. Would he be okay coming off the bench, maybe playing 15, 20 minutes? I'm not sure. I probably don't think so. So that would be a little bit of an issue there. But... but I think if you're just trading Dinwiddie, and I really don't think there are going to be a ton of options for the Nets, I think you take that. It gives you a player that's under contract, and you could potentially flip him again this offseason. I don't think it'll be super hard to trade a player like Bledsoe at $18 million, um, with just two more years remaining come the offseason. Even if you really had to just get off his money, I think you could send him to the Clippers or something. And uh, I think there are teams that would want Eric Bledsoe. So, I mean, if push comes to shove and the Nets are forced with either likely losing Dinwiddie um, they don't think they're going to be able to get him at 18, 19 million um, this offseason. I think, yeah, I think you'd take that trade. Um, it's a very interesting one. I haven't really thought about it too much, but I think ideally he, he's a defender. He could play in the backcourt um, next to some of these stars. I think he'd fit a role. I don't know if, if he'd be happy coming off the bench in a small role, but um, that, is, that is definitely an interesting trade. The one thing that would make me feel a little queasy about that is that the Nets obviously already have Bruce Brown. And look, I love Bruce Brown. I think he's been everything the Nets have wanted him to be. Defenses are not going to guard him in the playoffs. They are going to leave him alone, and they are going to dedicate those extra resources to the superstars. Mm -hmm. Eric Bledsoe is a better shooter than Bruce Brown, but not by much. He's been something resembling league average for the last several years, but he's declined this season, and obviously his playoff history is, let's just say, a little discouraging. Yeah. So, you know... I would be a little hesitant there, but, well, he's shooting 37.5% from three this year, actually. That's, that's better than I thought he was, but I, I would still feel, I think this is going to be, in general, an issue with a lot of Nets role players where, like, Jeff Green is shooting 42% on threes. There's no logical reason, under normal circumstances, that you should sag off of a 42% shooter, but the Nets offense warps the court in such a way that I think defenses are going to let Jeff Green shoot, and I think they're going to mm -hmm. let, you know... TLC shoot. I think they're going to let a lot of guys. And otherwise, on. you wouldn't. If TLC is seeing any playoff minutes, there are a lot of issues with this Nets team. That, that, they, they, their main goal going into this deadline should be making sure TLC never sees the court in the playoffs. I agree with I mean, you. I don't know if Steve Nash does. I, I don't know what, what the love affair is with TLC. Comes back 
the first game back injured, everyone else they ease back into play. He, he's right off the bench. The first, the first level of the bench, he plays five minutes. The Nets got to score by 16 points. I mean, I don't know what they see in, in TLC that, that we don't because, I mean, he'll go off for a week. He'll shoot 55% from three for a week, but literally every other week he'll – not be a good player, not a high IQ player. He plays like a chicken without a head. I mean, uh, I, I am a, I'm done with TLC. I, I agree with you. I don't know what is going on. That's one of my, I think Steve Nash has generally been a pretty good coach, especially for a first year coach. Mm-hmm. I think there are occasionally some crunch time rotation flubs, TLC included among them, but for the most part, he's been quite good. Every coach has their blind spot. And for Nash, it seems to be TLC. I can't explain it, but you're right. I think that would be a good goal coming into this deadline. Get him out of the rotation. <laughs> here's another Here's another trade. Not really on that front, but I, he would certainly fill minutes. He is a favorite of Nets Twitter. I don't know if they have the assets to go get him. What about Aaron Gordon? And the, the question here, without any first-round picks to trade, is would you be willing to give up Nick Claxton with Dinwiddie to get Gordon? I don't even know if Orlando would do that. But mm-hmm. from the Nets, would you consider that? Yeah, I think I tweeted that almost that verbatim last night because a lot of Nets fans were in love with Aaron Gordon again because he went off against the Nets, hit about six threes. Um, and they're like, oh, the Nets have been rumored from so long. We got to go get Aaron Gordon. Maybe he's, he's trying to show his value to the Nets before the deadline. And I'm just trying to let fans know it's going to take Dinwiddie. It's probably going to take Claxton with no first round picks um, and probably a couple second round picks, too. And I know Nets fans, with how they're loving Nick Claxton right now, they do not want to trade Nick Claxton um, in an Aaron Gordon deal. And that's pretty much the response I got from Nets fans. Hell no, no Claxton. We're not doing that. So, And I kind of feel similarly right now. I think the Nets right now are favorites in my mind, especially with Anthony Davis's injury. LeBron even hurt himself today. Who knows what happens there? I think the Nets should be seen as the favorites in the league right now for the championship. And while I believe in going all in and really capitalizing on that, I'm comfortable enough with where the Nets stand that I'm not giving up a guy like Claxton, Claxton that's uh, both cheap, um, young, and, and going to continue to improve while this roster is getting super expensive. And Aaron Gordon is going to be ma- making a good amount of money. So I personally wouldn't do that at this point. I think Claxton will be able to give you the switching that you need. I think they're good enough in, in they're improving defensively. They're I think the top 12 over the last 15 games. And that's even without KD. Um, so I, I think the nets are good enough at this point that I wouldn't do that all inside move. And I'm not even sure Orlando, but we've heard they've had a very, very high price tag on Gordon for a couple of years. Now they wanted something similar to what Covington got, um, what Houston got for Covington when he went to Portland, which was two first round picks. The Nets obviously can't provide that, so almost definitely take Claxton. I'm not sure if they value Claxton that high. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't. I wouldn't be surprised if they do. Um, but I think for the Nets right now, I don't think that Aaron Gordon is, is really what they need um, at that price. I, I'm comfortable to, with where they're at right now to, to kind of keep some young asset and, and go forward with what they got. If Jeff Green hadn't been as good as he's been all season— I might be more aggressive about seeking out somebody like Gordon. But the truth is, like, Jeff Green has done everything in his power to prove he deserves to be either the starting four or the closing five, whatever you want to describe it as. Like, they don't need the Aaron Gordon archetype as badly as they looked like they did before the season. Now, I personally would still do this trade. I am just of the opinion that, like, if you can get somebody who is, A, as good as Aaron Gordon is now, and B, as distressed an asset as Aaron Gordon is like he's done everything he's done in Orlando without any point guards whatsoever. If you go from Markel Fultz and DJ Augustine to James Harden and Kyrie Irving, like he might suddenly become a much better offensive player, but I think you're right. I think ultimately, or from Orlando's perspective, they're not interested enough in Claxton to forego the first round pick. They're certainly being offered, but I think Nick Claxton is worth the first round pick at the very least. Like, if you're asking me, would I rather have a traditional contender first round pick number 26 overall or Nick Claxton? I'm taking Nick Claxton. Yep. Now, my third trade, this is by far the most fun, I think. It is the rare trade deadline trade involving three contenders. It is a four-team trade. Are you ready? I am ready. The Nets send Spencer Dinwiddie to the Clippers. Mm-hmm. The Clippers send Love Lou that. Williams to the Bucks. Mm-hmm. The Bucks send Pat Connaughton, Bryn Forbes, and I guess this would come from the Clippers, Mfundu Kamangeli, 
whose name I will never be able to pronounce. <laughs> they go to the Thunder. The Thunder send George Hill to the Nets. We're going to have the Bucks giving the Houston 2021 second round pick to the Thunder to get them to give up Hill. But the contender portion of this is essentially the Clippers get Dinwiddie, the Bucks mm-hmm. get Lou Williams, and the Nets get George Hill. What do you think? So the Nets aren't giving any picks. It's just Dinwiddie for Hill. This is straight up for them, Dinwiddie for Hill, under the assumption that the Clippers are looking at this and just saying, we will never have another chance to get a point guard as good as Dinwiddie. We have to take the chance now. So I think for the because whenever I do multi-team trades, I just like to look at it from each team's perspective. Would they do this in a one-for-one type? Because sometimes it gets confusing. So Dinwiddie for Hill, I think the Nets would do that. Uh, I think George Hill will be a good get for them, play a similar role to Dinwiddie, be a better shooter. Um, he obviously has a winning pedigree with San Antonio and then Milwaukee so and Cleveland. So I think George Hill, the Nets would do that. When you look at the Bucks, they're they're sending out Connaughton, Forbes, and the first for Lou Williams. Yes, I my perspective on this is that a they didn't have a good backup point guard before they traded DJ Augustine. Now they don't have Augustine. They need another guard, and they need ideally kind of a microwave scorer type. They need somebody who can play, let's say, 12 minutes in a playoff game and get them 12 points. I think he's a perfect fit there. Now, that is a steep price. I mean, you you could argue that Pat Connaughton is better than Lou Williams right now. I don't think he's as valuable considering their, the style of players that they both are. But I, I would get that argument. I think the Bucks are probably the toughest sell here, especially yeah. giving up that pick. I personally think Lou is just such a good fit for them that I would go for it. See, I'm notoriously low on Lou Williams just because of his ability to fit in a playoff series, and he's too small to be a two, but he's not a good enough playmaker as a one, and he really can't guard anyone deep in the playoffs. So I don't love Lou Williams. I do really like him from Milwaukee and what they need, especially after that recent trade and losing Augustine, as you mentioned. I think that's a little bit of a steep price um, for him from Milwaukee. I don't think they'd get a first-rounder in that, and they're already losing two rotation players in that trade. And then... If they don't give up that first round pick, that whole trade falls apart because I don't think the Thunder are trading George Hill for relative scraps. Yeah, I I guess you could do like multiple seconds that Milwaukee has. But Milwaukee quietly has four or before the Bucks trade or before the Rockets trade. They have that Houston pick, which we could now view as kind of the crown jewel of their draft portfolio. But other than that, they have four tradable second round picks. And those are not good second round picks because they're Bucks picks. So would the Thunder take... Two of them? Three of them? I don't know. I think it would depend on what other offers they have. But the Bucks are probably where this trade falls apart. What do you think about the Clippers' side of this? See, I'm, I'm trying to think about how to fix the trade for it to work. I mean, I, I've, I've been saying I think Spencer Dinwiddie is the absolute perfect fit for the Clippers. Um, they, they need someone that can get to the rim at will, and that's Dinwiddie's strength. They need someone that can run the team as a real point guard, and that's Dinwiddie. Um, I don't think Pat Beverly's a starting caliber point guard for a championship team. Uh, I think Dinwiddie's the absolute perfect guy for them. I floated on the timeline the other day. I think the Clippers have to be realistic about where they stand right now. Their defense has gone down from where it was last season, despite having a lot of like guys you would think are good defensive players on their team. So I, I don't think that they're going to be better than the Lakers right now. Utah, I think that'd be a tough series for them. I don't think they're better than the Nets. So they'd have to pull off at least two up upsets in my opinion on the way to a title and that's just not something you see often so I think the Clippers should be realistic about where they stand right now it is kind of risky given that Kawhi is a free agent after the season but I think there's a good chance he stays I would really think about the possibility of trading for Dinwiddie I think that there's a potential also he comes back deep into the playoffs and can help them but I think that's a place Dinwiddie would want to stay he gets a big role for a good team similar to the Nets um, gets to be back home in LA I think that's a great fit for both parties. The question is, do the Nets help the Clippers there? Um, or the Bucks, that- frankly. Like, a lot of these, See, that, all three that, of these teams have to think, do we want to help a team we might be playing against in a couple months? Yeah, if, they, if both, all those teams kind of look away from that and kind of really focus on what they're getting and how it can help them, I think if the Clippers add someone like Terrence Mann in the deal to Oklahoma City, I think Oklahoma City would like a talent, uh, an athlete like that. So maybe put Terrence Mann to Oklahoma City. Add in, um, add in a Clippers second, maybe, to Oklahoma City. Take the Bucks first out and put in a second there to Oklahoma City. And the Nets add in a second or two, because I think Dinwiddie for Hill would be a little bit too much of a steal for them, given that Dinwiddie's hurt. So maybe the Nets add a second or two, which they do have a couple extra. 
to Oklahoma City, and maybe they don't get a first-round pick, but they get about four seconds back for George Hill and Terrence Mann and Cabangeli and Connaughton and spare parts that they could potentially develop and flip them later for um, other parts. So I think that could be a way to fix that trade, but it's one of those complicated multi-team trades, as you mentioned, with contenders that typically don't trade together that I'm not sure it will happen. <laughs> I, yeah, I think there's some addition by subtraction if you include Terrence Mann in this trade because it would force the Clippers to start playing Luke Kennard. And look, I was very high on Luke Kennard coming into the season. My stock has plummeted. I think if they're going to win the championship, it's not crazy for me to say that they need to get something out of the guy they gave $64 million to. Like, I think they have to go down in flames with Luke Kennard, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But you're right. The Clippers right now, as constructed, are going to lose to the Lakers. I think they're a better matchup against Utah than you know, maybe their record would suggest, but they're not going to win the championship with the group they currently have. So they have some decisions to make. And I think the idea of saying, you know what, we'll take our best shot this year, but let's make this trade for next year and make the best version of our team. I think if they could get Dinwiddie, they should really consider it. I think that's their way of getting back into the favorite conversation next year, because they're certainly not doing it this year, barring something unforeseen. See, I think the Clippers could give the Lakers a tougher series than you're saying. I really think the Clippers match up well with the Lakers. Uh, you're going to bring up AD. I think I think what the Clippers have, they have Ibaka that can guard him if they place at the five, which that's not great, but I think it's good enough. Marcus Morris can compete with them. He's not a great defender, but he competes. He's physical. Um, Kawhi and even PG can switch on to him. I think, and Batum even a little bit here, they're like, they have enough versatile defenders in that big forward kind of versatile big type range that they can kind of defend that two-man action that we spoke about. I think the Clippers would give the Lakers a tough series. And I thought going into last year's bubble, I thought the Clippers would beat the Lakers if they played. I did too. Yeah. And I I think we're forgetting about that because the Clippers fell to to Denver, but it's all about matchups. And I think the Clippers would have a tougher time even this season with Utah than they would with the Lakers. So um, and I'm not even a believer that Utah is a real championship contender just because I don't think they have a superstar. And it's going to show its um, show show that at, at the, deep in the playoffs. But I think the Clippers would have a tougher time with the Jazz than the Lakers. And that might be bold, but I'm going to stick with it. My argument for the Clippers liking a matchup against the Jazz is that Rudy Gobert just is not that valuable in that particular matchup defensively because the Clippers just don't attack the basket. They're a jump shooting team. And there's only so much that the NBA's best rim protector can do against the team that shoots as much as the, as the Clippers do. Now, in a Lakers matchup, I would argue Rudy Gobert becomes a good deal more valuable because the Lakers are so heavily reliant on getting to the basket. Now, Rudy has had his issues with some of the best centers in the NBA in one-on-one matchups. You know, Embiid destroyed him earlier this year. Jokic has destroyed him twice. Anthony Davis had his way with Gobert last year. I don't think that... It's crazy to say that the Clippers are a good matchup against the Lakers. I I think on paper, they certainly look like it. The Lakers just look so much more cohesive right now, even without Anthony Davis, that when they get back up to full strength and when they downsize and move Davis to center, if the Clippers are playing the way they are right now, I don't see what their answer is. Like Serge Ibaka, based on how he's playing right now, I don't think is a viable answer to the Anthony Davis question. And every time they've played Zubac against Davis, Davis has destroyed him. Like Zubats yeah. is, I'm not going to say unplayable in that matchup, but like, I hate to say this because it was a Magic Johnson move and Magic Johnson made some questionable moves, but like they gave Zubats away for free for a reason, right? Like they didn't think that Zubats was a high level playoff player. And I am inclined to agree with that in that specific matchup. I mean, Anthony Davis is a tough matchup for a lot of guys, but right. uh, that's obviously not one there. Basically, my point is, I, I think the Lakers are going to the finals unless the Clippers beat them. I think the Clippers are the only team that could beat the Lakers. Um, I think that's reasonable, yes. So, and I, yeah, and I think the Clippers, personally, I think it's also being the Battle of L.A., PG and Kawhi would kind of want to be a, a duo matchup against LeBron and AD. I think that would kind of raise the stakes in everyone there. Um, and the competitive spirit of it being L.A. versus L.A., I think the Clippers um, would, would have a better chance against L.A. than Utah, personally. So let's move on to the buyout market, especially there's going to be competition from the L.A. teams for Brooklyn for all three of these guys that I have down. I think that there are three very obvious buyout targets for Brooklyn. We mentioned the first. It's Andre Drummond. The question I want to get into there is how much of an upgrade over DeAndre Jordan is he? And I think meaningful, if not significant. 
But if you're signing him, politically, you've mentioned, it's going to be pretty hard to mention DeAndre Jordan. How do you allocate the center minutes with Drummond, Blake, DeAndre, and then your small ball looks with Jeff Green, and then Nick Claxton as well? Is he even worth it at that point? Yeah, I think the only way to do it would be to bench DeAndre. I mean, he's out of the rotation, and barring Drummond getting hurt and it being a big series against the Sixers or the Bucks, I, I don't think Jordan's seeing time, and I'm not sure the Nets are ready to do that. He hasn't been that bad, in my opinion. Um, and for what the Nets are going to need in a Sixers series, it's going to be post-defense. And DeAndre is still strong as a post-defender while he'll struggle in space and other aspects. But as a post-defender, he's still a seven-foot guy that's strong down there with length in the post defense shots. So, And I'm not sure for what the Nets need when we talk about need. And I'm always more talent over, over fit or need. I think it will work itself out. But in this case, it's almost diminishing returns when you're looking at Drummond versus Jordan for what the Nets need. The Nets are going to need defense. They're going to need rim rolling. They're going to need low usage, finishing at the rim, just dunk, run the floor, or jog the floor in DeAndre's case, um, and basically defend. And I'm not sure Drummond's a better defender than DeAndre. Um, and he's going to want the ball more. He's going to be trying to dribble from the free throw line, attacking downhill, turn it over, miss his layup, and put it back in for a dunk, but for a layup. So that, that's Drummond's game. I mean, he's not going to be the same rim roller as DeAndre, and he's not going to be as good of a defender. So I'm not sure the fit there. I think you take him, obviously, and you bench DeAndre if the Nets think that's going to work in-house. Um, but I think Drummond's a better fit with the Lakers. And for the Nets, I think you want to add another big, you just get someone like JaVale McGee. Don't keep him in the rotation. And if DeAndre stinks it up out there or something, then you could always um, put McGee in there to, to play that big matchup against an Embiid type. So I think they could use one more big, but not someone of Drummond's status that's going to demand a lot of minutes, touches, and not be as good defensively. I think the best reason for the Nets to get Andre Drummond is to keep him away from the Lakers. Now, I'll stress, I am not a huge Andre Drummond fan, and if the Lakers keep both Marc Gasol and Montrezl Harrell, I don't know how much sense he makes there. I don't know how you divide minutes among those three and Anthony Davis at center when you get to the playoffs, but I think if the Lakers were to trade Montrezl Harrell, and there have been some rumors about that, mm-hmm. getting Drummond would make a lot of sense because Drummond sort of fits the same category that Dwight Howard did last year, where like this is a guy who has been a star in the past, has fallen on some hard times. Can LeBron revitalize him and get him to buy in? LeBron's track record suggests yes. We'll see. But I think the best thing that you can do on the buyout market, if you're the Nets, who probably have enough talent to win as it is, if you can weaken your competition, like that has value too. Uh-huh. Now, I think, with all of the noise we're getting about Andre Drummond and the Lakers, it seems like that's where he's headed, regardless of what the Lakers do in the trade market. But you're, you're right. I, I think it's probably, it would probably make more sense to add a lower stature, big somebody who's not going to interrupt the rotation much, but could potentially play a little bit if necessary. The next guy, I, I think it's just destiny that he's going to end up on the nets at some point. He <laughs> is the last of the Sean Marks restricted free agent signings. Alan Crabb made it to Brooklyn eventually. Tyler Johnson made it to Brooklyn eventually. It is destiny. Otto Porter is going to be a net eventually. Will it be now or will it be later? Hey, don't forget about Donatus Matiunas. We can't forget about that one. Oh, uh, wow. He might not get to 100%. Although, Marks might give him like a training camp invite just for the sake of completing the right. <laughs> Um But, yeah, I mean, Otto Porter Jr., if the Nets have a need at this point, Otto Porter Jr. would kind of fix fix those. I mean, long... Um, three and D forward already a really good three point shooter. You put him next to these guys. I mean, he's going to be shooting the lights out. Imagine the big three next to Joe Harris and Otto Porter jr. I mean, you might be a little undersized and defensively, maybe you could use a little bit more, but offensively that would be out of this world. You'd have two 45% three point shooters. In my opinion, I think Otto Porter jr. Could shoot that in that role surrounded by three of the best offensive players we've ever seen. It would be unreal. Um, Otto Porter Jr., I think if he gets here, he should be the starting three man, personally. Um, you go Harden, Kyrie, Porter Jr., Durant, um, DJ, if you want to start him. And then off the bench, you bring Joe Harris to the bench. He's still playing almost starter minutes with Blake and, and Griff and Green and, and Claxton. And you just play with those guys. And um, I think that would be really good for the Nets. And I don't know who would beat them if they get Otto Porter Jr. My counter argument is we saw this with Joe Ingles last year and to a lesser extent this year. 
I really hate disrupting a shooter's rhythm by changing their role in the rotation. Like when Joe Ingles went from the bench to starting last year, like it changed his game completely. He went from a frankly underwhelming three-point shooter to one of the best in the NBA again. Joe Harris is shooting so well in his current role that like I could just leave the, leave the man alone and let everybody else adjust around him. But speaking of shooting, here's the obvious one, and here's the one that I think more than anything is the let's keep him away from everyone else signing, and that's J.J. Redick. His family lives in Brooklyn. He obviously knows Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan quite well. I think we both assume he's going to get bought out eventually because nobody's going to trade for that $13 million salary. I mean, do you see a big role for him in Brooklyn, or is it more just the Lakers need shooting, so let's keep him away from the Lakers? I don't even think it has anything to do with anyone else. I don't even know if the Nets think he's in need, out they're going to play him in the rotation or anything. I just think that the Nets respect J.J. Redick as a person. They pursued him as a free agent back years ago when this Markinson era, when Kenny Atkinson was still around, started off. Um, and they signed Jeremy Lin that summer. They pursued Redick before he signed with the with the, the Sixers. Nets gave him two, a two-year offer. The Sixers gave him a third year. But J.J. Redick has a place in Brooklyn. His family's living there still and has lived there over the years. I mean, he wants to be here and he's talked about on his podcast, which he does so often and so well that he cannot see himself retiring without a ring. He desperately wants one. And he's been a winner throughout his career, even back into college. He's a competitive player, good locker room guy. Guys like him obviously knows DJ and Blake. I think it's a foregone conclusion. If he gets a buyout from the Pelicans, he's straight to the Nets. Not even I agree. all from the Lakers. I think he's coming to the Nets right away Whether the Nets play him or not. I think he'd be okay if they said listen we can't guarantee you minutes you're probably gonna be on the outside of the rotation unless something happens i think he would still come here i think he wants to be with the nets that badly in brooklyn around his family it'd be special to him to win a title and the nets are the best option for that as of now i think he'd probably be competing with landry shaman for maybe 10 to 12 minutes in a playoff series um they'd be competing for minutes i'm not even sure if either would play in certain matchups but I think J.J. Redick to the Nets would be a foregone conclusion at that point. And the Nets, interestingly enough, still have two roster spots. And they could have opted to sign Roberson or, or Shumpert or Tyler Cook to another 10-day to bring them to the trade deadline. And still obviously be able to sign someone like Redick in the buyout market. But they just opted not to. And that tells me that they know that there's someone that's going to be out there. And why even put Shumpert or Roberson or Cook through another 10-day cycle when they know it's a foregone conclusion they're not going to be here long term because they have their eyes on someone else. Yeah, I would agree. The only reason for Redick to consider the Lakers or the Clippers, aside from the fact that, like, he does live in Brooklyn, his family's in Brooklyn, but he played in L.A. for years. Like, he's clearly comfortable in Los Angeles. But the reason to go to the Lakers or the Clippers would be that minutes are probably easier to come by there. Like, the Lakers would give J.J. Redick 15 minutes a night. They need shooting that badly. In Brooklyn, like, he might be worse than Landry Shamit right now. There's no guarantee of playing time, but ultimately I do agree. I feel pretty comfortable saying that without a trade, J.J. Redick is going to be a net. Now, I think the funniest outcome here is that the Knicks use their cap space to trade for J.J. Redick just to keep Brooklyn because they're spiteful. I'm sorry, the Knicks are a pretty spiteful organization. They need shooting, too. I think that's the one roadblock here. But if they do, if he does get to the buyout market, I agree. He's going to be a net. And I don't know how much he's going to play, but he's going to be there. And I think... At the very least, considering what you normally get out of the buyout market, like that's a positive addition. Like that's somebody who could theoretically help you. But speaking of guys who are and who aren't going to play, the last question I want to get to, and we can kind of tie this in with the trade and with the buyout stuff and say, could anybody they add theoretically crack this group is what do you think the closing lineup ultimately is? And this might depend on matchup, but I'll throw a couple numbers out at you. When you play, when they have played the three stars with Jeff Green and Joe Harris, it's only 151 possessions. It's a tiny sample. Don't read too much into this, but that fivesome is outscoring opponents by 26.7 points per hundred possessions. Like that is off the charts good. That is like Warriors death lineup good essentially. When Joe Harris and Bruce Brown are the two guys playing alongside the the, the three stars. It's only been 30 possessions, so it means nothing, plus 16.4. Interestingly, the group that we haven't seen at all yet is the three stars, Bruce Brown, and Jeff Green. I think that lineup is worth a look, but ultimately, where do you think they land in the closing five? 
I think given the numbers we've seen so far from the Jeff Green, Joe Harris version, it's probably that. So I think Joe Harris is going to be in 99% of the closing lineups alongside the three stars. So I think, let's just say for these purposes, those are the four. So you're looking for a fifth guy. And whether it's Bruce Brown or Jeff Green, as you mentioned with the stats, the reason these team, those lineups have success is because they put the ball in Harden's hands. He runs high pick and roll with either Brown or Green as a cutter. Um, sometimes Green will pop out for three, depending on how the other team's playing them. But they'll use Green and Brown as the roller, and they're spaced out with obviously tremendous shooting and offensive talent. So, I mean, I think a guy like Blake Griffin could potentially take that role if he can be the player I think he could be. Um, obviously, when teams are blitzing hard and, um, and really playing pressure defense deep in the playoffs, his passing and his experience, um, and a guy that's capable and has experience taking big shots, he, he, he could deal with that pressure, because I think that's an underrated aspect in all this. Bruce Brown's been a nice story. He hasn't been in that moment. And Blake Griffin, even if he's past his prime, which he obviously is, even if he's not as good as he once was, he understands what it takes late in the playoffs. He obviously hasn't, hasn't won anything in his career with the Clippers, but he's played in pressure situations, been relied upon to take big shots. If the ball's in his hands and a big decision has to be made with the ball late in the game, I trust him in that position more than Bruce Brown. Uh, and Bruce Brown, we've seen a little bit of kind of returning to the norm in terms of his floater. He's not shooting out of this world over the last few weeks. And I think you're going to see him fall back a little bit. Same with Jeff Green. I don't think he's going to shoot 43% from three the whole year. And that's why Blake's role is going to be important because I think he's going to be able to play a similar role of, of screening, short roll, make a decision, um, be able to pop a little bit like Jeff Green. I think in a way he gives you ideally a mesh of what Bruce Brown and Jeff Green give you offensively in terms of he could pop out a little bit like Jeff Green. Um, he can roll and finish at the rim um, like Jeff Green. But at the same time, Bruce Brown's a better passer than Jeff Green in the short roll. Blake Griffin's a better passer than them both. So I think he's going to give different things. And with those three guys, he'll give the Nets options um, to be playing in, in that style with, with that five-man roller next to the four other guys. So I think that's kind of going to be what the Nets go with. They add an Otto Porter. Obviously, he's going to be factored into the mix as a, as a 3 and D type of player that complements that group well. But I think it's going to be the four we mentioned, three stars and Joe Harris. And then one of those three, I don't think Bruce Brown actually, I'm going to take that back. I don't think Bruce Brown is going to be finishing games late in the playoffs for the Nets. Um, I think he's going to be a fringe rotation player at that point. So it's probably going to be Jeff Green, as you mentioned. If Blake can be good, as I mentioned, as, as I hope, um, I think he could play that role. And then you have the potential that Claxton continues to improve and just is too good to hold out. Um, but for now, I think Jeff Green at the five is probably the likeliest one. I'm going to argue for Bruce Brown. I, I think in all likelihood, you're right that when it comes down to it, it's probably either going to be Jeff Green or one of the new people. But my argument for Bruce Brown, and this is a comparison that is going to piss off every fan that hears this. He reminds me so much of Alex Caruso. Like, they are so similar as players, such underrated defenders, high IQ, move so well off of the ball. The Lakers just won a championship with Alex Caruso essentially as a closer. I think that when you have enough perimeter talent, you can get away with a non-shooter if he does all the other things that Bruce Brown does. Now, there are going to be matchups where he's not necessary, right? Like, I don't see a reason to close with Bruce Brown against Philly. But if you're playing against a team with, you know, a star guard that you need a little extra defensive oomph for, then I think it would make sense to close with Bruce Brown. But ultimately, I think you're right. I think Jeff Green is the likeliest answer. That lineup has killed everybody that it's seen so far. And if they are, if they find a lineup that does not include Jeff Green in the closing five by the end of the season, it probably means that lineup has been better than the Green version has, which is scary considering how good it's been. Even if Jeff Green isn't a 42% shooter all year, if he's at something like 37 or 38, that's probably enough to win the championship. And I hate to boil it down to a role player, but teams aren't going to defend Jeff Green as vigorously as they should, given his percentages. I think mm -hmm. a big one of the biggest swings for the Nets, the thing that might determine do they win the championship or not, is if Jeff Green shoots 42%, they probably win or they come very, very close. If he shoots 34%, it opens things up a bit. It's probably going to land somewhere in between. And that, I think, is going to be one of the biggest differences for the Nets. Now, 
Billy, this was an absolute pleasure. Go read Billy's work at Nets Daily. Billy, where else can we find you? Find me on Twitter at Billy Reinhardt. Pretty, pretty easy. Um, me and Sam kind of interact a lot, so maybe you'll find me in, in his comments. My but... last friend on Nets Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I think you may have a few more after this one. Let's hope. That'll <laughs> do it for us today. Um, we will be back with Colin uh, probably early next week. But until then, go subscribe, like, review, do whatever it is you need to do to get people to listen to the show. That'll do it, and we will be back next week.